Well, again, great to see all of you today. Glad to have you with us. If you've got your Bible, we'll be looking again at the book of Jude, continuing on in our, uh, in our march through that little tiny short book of 25 verses. Take a couple more of them today and expand some more of our thoughts. You know, in, in my reading this week, I came across a survey done by the Pew Research Center. Pew is in the a church pew. I used to do a lot of church studies. Now they do a lot of other things as well. It was reported by Pastor David Jeremiah in one of his daily devotionals. And this survey by the Pew Research Center just conducted last year. They said that three-fourths, 75% of American adults said that they believe in heaven. But there was widespread disagreement, of course, on how to get there. Uh, And the fascinating thing to me, almost the shocking thing to me, 40% of the Americans that they surveyed believed that said they believed that heaven would be the home of those who do not even believe in God. I thought, I didn't think atheists believed in heaven. They don't believe in God. They think there's, some people think they're still going to heaven. That's amazing. And then the thing that was even more shocking to me, they said among those who call themselves Christians, who say, I am a Christian, 58% of them said that there were multiple ways to get to heaven. That idea, of course, is totally anti-biblical, totally unbiblical, reminds us again of why Jude began his brief letter telling his readers to earnestly contend for the faith. The faith, not just contend for faith, but the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. That body of truth that was delivered to us once and for all. There is completeness, there is finality to what we believe about the Lord Jesus. Our belief system was handed to us, Jude says, was delivered to us, was entrusted to us by Jesus Christ himself, first to the apostles, excuse me, and then through them to the generations to follow for the last 2,000 years. It was the, it was the, or it is the, the final completed revelation of God and his plan of salvation, his plan to redeem us, to save us from the penalty of our sin and rebellion against him. That's why Jesus cried out on the cross before he died. It is finished because he had completed and fulfilled the eternal plan of our salvation. That's why he spent 40 days on earth after his resurrection. Acts chapter 1 tells us he was giving commandments to his apostles and speaking about the kingdom of God. That's Acts 1, 1 to 3. What was Jesus doing during that 40 days on earth? He was hand delivering the faith to the apostles and the 100 or so of the other faithful disciples. He was giving them the message that they were to preach. And the Apostle Paul calls it the gospel. He describes it in 1 Corinthians 15 as being all of the truths about the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. We have defined the gospel to you on many occasions as as the, the truth about the person and work of Christ. The person of Christ is who he is. The work of Christ is what he did. So who was Jesus Christ? What was he actually accomplishing through his life on earth and death on the cross? That is the gospel story. That is the faith that was once and for all delivered to us. 
And Jude said in those early verses, he said, you'd better battle to hang on to that because certain teachers have snuck into the churches and are already perverting the truth about Jesus. Jesus entrusted the truth about himself to the apostles, and they have passed it down to us generation after generation, and we are responsible to keep it and pass it to the next generation, not just as the apostles recorded it for us in the New Testament. And that's the battle that's been committed to us, to preserve the truth and to pass it on. And if Pew Research Center is correct, and they're probably very close, and 58% of professing Christians in our country actually think there are multiple ways to God, then somebody has blown it big time. Many people have apparently blown it big time. Church leaders and pastors and Sunday school teachers and parents and grandparents who know the Lord and professing followers of Jesus everywhere have failed the next generation if 58% of professing Christians in our country think there are multiple ways to God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God the Father except through me. John 14, 6. Many of you know that verse. You also know, if you've been with us for some of our Bible studies, that, that, that the word believe in the New Testament is so much stronger a word than our modern English usage. Believe today is almost used like it's an opinion. I believe such and such a team will win the NBA Finals. I believe it will be a dry year. I believe a certain politician is a nut. That's my opinion. But believe in the New Testament means total trust, pledging your loyalty, pledging your allegiance. You are pledging your allegiance to Jesus Christ because of who he is and what he did, recognizing our sin and totally trusting him for forgiveness. It is far more than just accepting a fact as being correct. So Jesus said in John 3.36, He who believes in the Son, he who trusts, he who has, takes this pledge of loyalty, this pledge of allegiance, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe, he says, will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So many people out there today say, well, you know, I believe in God, but I'm just not so sure about this Jesus stuff. I worship the Creator, but this Jesus thing, I'm just, I'm just not so sure about. Well, you know the verse, I've quoted it to you before, 1 John 2.23 says, Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. John 5.23 says, He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. There's, there's only one way to heaven, only one way to be made right with God, only one true and living God, only one Savior, Great passage in Isaiah chapter 45, verses 21 and 22 says, There is no other God besides me, God says, a just God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Look to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Several years ago when we were studying through Isaiah 40 to 46, we found there are, there are no less than ten times in those chapters where God says, I am the only God there is, or ever has been, or ever will be. I am the only Savior. It's me or nothing. There's only one way to heaven. There's only one way to be made right with God. Only one true and living God. Only one Savior. And unfortunately, somebody has not been preaching that truth. 
if 58% of the, of the professing Christians in our country think there are multiple ways to heaven. And apparently many professing Christians don't read their Bibles either. For they've opened themselves up to false doctrine if they believe that there's no other way, or that there are many, many ways to get to heaven. There's only one. So James says, or Jude says, rather, contend for the faith, battle for the faith, which was delivered and entrusted to us with certainty and finality by our Lord Jesus Christ and his apostles. Last week we began this section of scripture <clears throat> that, Jude is, uh, that Jude has here before us today, and we talked about his description of apostate teachers. We're going to read verses 8 through 13 again today. Last week we uh, just gave you basically four descriptions. We talked about the different properties of false of these apostates, uh, what they are. They're dreamers. They're immoral. They're rebellious. They're arrogant. This week we're going to see their path and their product. Last week we looked at their properties. This week we'll look at their path and their product, and we'll read this section again, Jude, beginning in verse eight. Likewise, also these dreamers defile the flesh reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know, and whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, in these things they corrupt themselves. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are spots in your love feasts, while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. They are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots, Raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame. Wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Jude describes the path that apostates travel by talking about three Old Testament examples. You probably have heard of Cain. I'm sure you have, but Balaam and Korah may not be as familiar. We're not going to read all of the stories of these men, but I'll give you the Old Testament references. Uh, you can read their story for, for, uh, for further study if you, if you wish to, and I would encourage you to do so. But I'm going to summarize their stories for you. But Jude talks about the way of Cain, the error of Balaam, and the rebellion of Korah. He says there in verse 11. Cain was the oldest son of Adam and Eve. According to Genesis chapter 4, that's where Cain's story is, the first 15 verses of Genesis 4. Most Hebrew students believe that Cain and Abel were twins, based on the way the text reads. But as they grew to adulthood, Cain farmed and Abel raised sheep. They both brought an offering to the Lord, that passage says, a sacrifice to God. Abel sacrificed one of his sheep, Cain brought some of the produce that he had grown. God respected Abel's offerings, but not Cain's. Some people say, well, why not? Under the law of Moses, there were grain offerings that were allowed. That is correct. Many centuries later, under the law of Moses, there were acceptable offerings of agricultural produce. But sacrifices for sin always required the shedding of blood, the death of an animal. 
When Adam and Eve sinned, God killed an animal, used the skin of the animal as clothing for Adam and Eve, and thus that pattern was set forever. As the scripture says in Hebrews 9, which is a quote from Leviticus 17, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission, there is no forgiveness of sin. I believe it's Hebrews 9.22, and they're quoting from Leviticus 17. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. That's why Jesus, the Lamb of God, died the way that he died. So Cain brought the wrong offering, and he apparently had the wrong motive. Because God told him, and you can read it in Genesis 4, God told him, Cain, he said, if you'll do the right thing, your offering will be accepted. But Cain didn't do that. And, and, he, and, and God said to him, if you don't do the right thing, then he said, sin is crouching at the door waiting for you. So Cain was at the point of decision. He was at the point of having a choice. We all have choices every day of our lives. We have choices to obey God. We have choices to disobey God. We have choices regarding our attitudes. We have choices regarding our perspectives. Our lives are filled with choices. And as I've said to you 500 times, our lives are built on our choices. We are what we are because of the choices we have made over the period of many years. That's true of every single one of us in every single circumstance. So Cain brings the wrong offering. God doesn't accept it. Cain gets mad. God says to him, Cain, why are you upset? If you'll just do the right thing, I will accept your offering. Cain is at this point of decision. Do I obey God or disobey God? Well, you know what he did. Rather than obey God, he murdered his brother. Disobedience became rebellion, which became jealousy, which became anger, which turned into murder. As God had said, sin was indeed crouching at his door. So what is the way of Cain that Jude refers to here? He says these false teachers, these apostates, they have gone in the way of Cain. You know what the way of Cain is? It is creating your own way to worship. Cain says, I don't care what God says. I'll make up my own way to worship. And if God doesn't like it, too bad. Because I am my own God and I'll make my own choices. You know, you know, Cain was a very religious person. Cain was a very spiritual person. He just created his own way to worship rather than, than, than God's way. He just kind of created his own way to approach God. Many, many people today are walking the path of Cain. They say, I'm just going to reach God my own way. Well, it's a private thing, you know. I'm just, I'm just finding God my own way. That's the way of Cain. That's the path of apostasy. The next person in here is Balaam. He's not quite as well known, although you may recognize one part of his story. Balaam's story is recorded in the book of Numbers. It starts in chapter 22 and it kind of goes into chapter 24. It's a little bit longer passage of scripture. But, uh, but the story behind Balaam is this. Uh, the king of Moab, his name was Balak, he hired Balaam to curse Israel. Balak was worried about Israel. He, he viewed them as a threat because there were so many Jewish people, even though actually this occurred during the 40 years in the wilderness. They weren't even into the land of, 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 of Palestine yet. They were still wandering in the wilderness for their 40 years. 
But Balak said to Balaam, these, these Israelites, they just cover the land. And there's way too many of them for us to, to ever uh, attack them. So he said, I want to hire you to go curse Israel, to go put a hex on them. Because uh, he said, and you have a reputation of your curses, your hex is working. And so, and he, so he said, I want to pay you. I'm going to give you X number of sheep and cattle and money and so forth. <clears throat> I'm going to pay you to go curse Israel, put this hex on them. Well, in the meanwhile, God actually speaks to Balaam. And God says to Balaam, don't you go curse Israel. Don't even think about it. They are blessed. They are under my blessing. I'm not going to let you curse my people. You can't put any kind of hex on them. Well, Balaam ended up going anyway. And he devised a plan that he was going to use to lure Israel into idolatry and immorality. And this is the part of the story that you may have heard of along the way. The angel of the Lord, as Balaam was riding along on his donkey, heading over to the spot, he was going to get on top of this hilltop where he could see the people of, uh, of Israel. He, he was going to put this hex on them, put this curse on them. The angel of the Lord kind of blocked his way. Uh, and uh, the donkey that, that Balaam was riding saw the angel of the Lord, but Balaam did not. God had closed his eyes to not be able to see him. And so the donkey sees the angel of the Lord standing there with his sword, and he turns off and goes down into the ditch. Balaam starts beating on his donkey to get him back up on the road again, and the angel of the Lord moves to another place. There, they go along a little further, and the angel of the Lord stops on a piece of the road that's in between two vineyards, and there's, and there's, a, there's a, a big stone wall on either side, and the angel of the Lord is down at the far end, and Balaam and his donkey begin to ride through, and the donkey sees the angel of the Lord, and you know, you know what horses do when they get scared, donkeys do when they get scared? He runs over to the side, and he basically smashes Balaam's leg and his foot up against the rock wall. And so Balaam starts beating on the donkey again. And the angel of the Lord moves, and the angel of the Lord goes further down, just a little ways, and he comes to a very narrow place where there's nowhere to go. And the angel of the Lord stands there, and Balaam riding his donkey, he comes up to the spot, and the donkey sees the angel of the Lord, he realizes there's nowhere to go, so he just lays down. Right underneath Balaam, just goes right to the ground. Balaam starts whacking on his donkey again, you stupid donkey. I don't know what he was saying. I probably don't even want to know what he was saying. And God miraculously gives the donkey, performs a miracle, and he makes the donkey talk. And the donkey looks back at Balaam and he says, why are you hitting me? I have always done exactly what you always wanted me to do. And Balaam and his donkey exchange a few words. It's kind of interesting. You can read it there in Numbers 22 to 24. They exchange a few words uh, as the donkey's speaking to Balaam. And I'm, I'm, I'm kind of wondering, isn't Balaam thinking, donkeys don't talk? <laughs> Something supernatural is going on here. But no, he just carries on this conversation with his donkey like it's a normal everyday afternoon. And then God opens Balaam's eyes. And he sees the angel. And all of a sudden, everything changed. Balaam fell down on his face before the angel of the Lord. And he was instructed to go to Israel. And he said, you're already on the way. He said, you're going to go. But he said, when you get there, you're going to say what I tell you to say, God says to him. So Balaam gets up on top of the hilltop with Balak, the king of Moab. And he gives this big, long, beautiful little sermon about how God was going to bless Israel. 
Boy, Balak was so upset. I paid you to curse these people. I paid you to put this hex on these guys. And he says, listen, he said, God, God their God, the Lord of heaven, he, he is forbidding me from cursing them. I, I, I could only say what he told me to say. And so Balaam basically blessed them. So you say, so what was Balaam's error? Because he says, he's not all, these guys have not only gone in the way of Cain, they have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit. And that's, the, and that's the key there. They've run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit. What was Balaam's error? He was ministering for money. He was motivated by greed. He was offering his services as a prophet for money. And Jude says that is the path to apostasy. When people say, I'll pray for you if you give me X number of dollars. I'll pray for you if you'll send this in to my ministry. I'll, I'll send this to you if you give me that. Jude says that's the path of apostasy. When, when people are demanding pay for what they say they're doing for the Lord. The third person he talks about here is Korah. Korah's story is recorded in Numbers chapter 16. Not quite as long, it's pretty much all in just one chapter, Numbers 16. Korah was a Levite, he was of the tribe of Levi, he was actually a cousin to Moses. And, and, and as a Levite, he had responsibilities in the tabernacle. I think most of you know that the tribe of Levi was the priestly tribe. They kind of, God set them apart, that one tribe, and out of the 12 tribes of Israel, he selected the tribe of Levi you know, to kind of oversee the tabernacle. Later on, when the temple was built in King Solomon's era, they, they carried on all of the administrative, operational duties of the temple in the tabernacle. But every Levite did not become a priest, but every Levite worked in and around the temple in the tabernacle. So as they, as they were selecting people to serve as Old Testament priests, Korah figured he should be selected. But God didn't, uh, God told Moses not, not to pick him. And so Korah did not get chosen as a priest. <clears throat> he became absolutely irate. He was so angry that he influenced 250 other men to rise up in rebellion against Moses. And, and Korah stood in front of the whole congregation, in front of Moses, and said, How dare you do this? Why do you think you have the authority to do this? I have as much right to be a priest as anybody else. And on and on he went. You know what God did? Because Korah not only had influenced 250 other men to rise up in rebellion against Moses, he had also influenced a large group of Israelites to be sympathetic to his cause. He openly challenged Moses' authority, and then Korah began to offer incense offerings like a priest would do, even though he wasn't one. And my personal opinion is, that's when he crossed the line. God might have tolerated him speaking against Moses, maybe for a moment or two, and then just rebuking him, but, but when he said, I'm just going to be a priest, I don't care what you say, I'm going to offer incense and act like one, and you don't have any right to tell me anything. When he crossed that line, you know what happened? Well, maybe you don't know what happened. That's why you're looking at me so intently. God opened up a big crack in the earth. And Korah and his entire household fell down into that big crevice, and God closed the ground back up over them. And then fire came out from heaven 
and 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 they're out, out from the tabernacle, and it, and and it killed all those two hundred and fifty fellow mutineers that Korah had wound up uh, gathering to himself. Then a plague broke out among all the people who had sympathized with Korah and grumbled against Moses, and another fourteen thousand seven hundred of them died. So God does not take rebellion very lightly. And when these people rose up and defying Moses and defying what God had told him to do and, and, and just taking, their, taking matters into their own hands and saying, I don't care if you pick me as a priest, I'm going to act like one anyway. And God says, I don't think so. I'll open up the ground. After you fall in, I'll squish you back together. You guys are gone. Hundreds of years later, God told Saul through the prophet Samuel, it's a great verse, if you're looking for a wonderful verse to memorize, this is a great passage, 1 Samuel 15, verses 22 and 23. What God said there, he said, rebellion is like the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is like idolatry. That's the way God views it. Rebellion is like the sin of witchcraft, Saul told Samuel, and stubbornness is like idolatry, 1 Samuel 15. You see, making up your own way to, uh, to approach God, and ministering with demands for money, and rejecting God-ordained authority, all those things place a person on the path of apostasy, turning their back against God. Because it reveals a heart of greed, and a heart of pride, and a heart of rebellion. It is, it is the way of Cain, and the error of Balaam, and the rebellion of Korah. But what does that ultimately produce? If you wind up on the path of apostasy, what does that actually produce? Well, look at verse 12 and 13 again. These are spots in your love feasts while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. They are clouds without water, carried about by the wind, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. There are five results of apostasy. That's what this that's what he's talking about. He gives all these little illustrations from nature. Five results of apostasy. You know, there's a minor textual dispute regarding the word translated spots in verse 12. Some Greek texts of the New Testament have, have the word for stain or blemish, which is why it's translated here, spots in your love feast. Others have the word for a rock or a coral reef that ocean waves splash over. The two words are only one letter different, like the different between, difference between a lowercase a and a lowercase o. If the letter is actually meant to be an o, then it's a stain. If it's an a, then it's a coral reef. But either one fits the passage. And what Judah's saying is apostates are either a stain in a love feast. And you say, what's a love feast? It's like we would we'll call a big church dinner. In the early church, only lasted for about the first century of the church. They would gather together for many hours. They didn't just have an hour-long service or a two-hour-long service. They would gather together and on, on the Lord's Day on Sunday. They would, they would be together for hours, and they would sing. They would read the Scripture. They would preach the Word. They would pray together. They would observe the Lord's Supper. They would have a, a, a huge meal where they all brought food, and they would have a gigantic church fellowship. They called it in the early church the Love Feast. And he said, 
Jude said, when you gather for the love feast, these guys come, and he said, they're like a stain. He said, they're like an underwater coral reef that's just waiting to shipwreck you. He said, they eat with you without fear, meaning without any reverence for God, without any respect for the fellowship. He said, they're like a hidden coral reef ready to shipwreck you. And he said, they don't, they don't care. What's going to happen to you? They don't care what they do to the body of Christ. They don't care what they do to the fellowship of believers. That's why I say they're, they're in the, mixed in with this love feast and they have no fear, no respect for God or for what's going on there. He said, either way, you are headed for destruction. That's the first result. The first thing that apostasy, apostasy produces, it produces destruction. The second thing it produces is disappointment. We all know about this year. He says they are clouds without water. How many times have we seen those this year? Carried about by the wind. Yeah, okay, clouds without rain. He says apostates sound good. And they build up your expectations, but they're always a disappointment. They never deliver what they promise. So he said, not only does this path of apostasy lead to destruction, spiritually destruction, it leads to disappointment. Thirdly, it says, it, it, it produces death. He said, they're like late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots. You see, apostates are like fruitless fruit trees. They're just pulled up by the roots, twice dead. And I like the interesting thought. He says it, it's not just a fruitless tree with leaves but no fruit. It's a totally dead tree that's been pulled up by the, uh, by the roots. So it is incapable of actually producing fruit. What the apostates are teaching, Jude says, it can't bring fruit. It's impossible. But he said they're like a bunch of dead fruit trees in the fall that they died and the, and the owner pulled them out. They're pulled up by the roots. They are incapable of producing anything for God. So the path of apostasy leads to destruction, to disappointment, to death. And then thirdly, or fourthly, it, it produces debris. He said they are waging, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame. I lived near salt water for many years in my youth. I swam in it many times. I played in the waves. You know, every time there was a storm... The wind and the waves would increase and waves would crash up on the beach and after it was all over and things went back to normal, the storm would leave behind on the seashore lots of junk. Seaweed, various types of trash, bottles, dead fish, jellyfish, sticks, small tree limbs from who knows where. Actually, after a storm, the beach kind of stunk. I mean, all those dead fish laying around and and uh, rotting jellyfish and all the other stuff that washed up from there. And Jude says apostates leave a lot of spiritual debris behind. They're like wild waves of the sea, foaming up all the junk in the ocean. Sailors often call it flotsam and jetsam. They mean all the junk that's floating around in the ocean from shipwrecks and crashes and so forth. And I like to think of that of, uh, as being a lot of disillusioned people. I have met many of them who have listened to false teachers to the point that they're now disillusioned with God. They're disillusioned with the Word of God. They, they, these false teachers have never delivered what they promised. They've never produced fruit in anyone's life. They're leading them to destruction, and now they're like the debris on the beach after a storm. Lots of disillusioned people. 
And then the final thing, the final product of apostasy is doom. He said, they are like wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. He's not talking about a star in the sky that we see every night. A wandering star is the idea is a meteor. Like falling stars streaking across the sky for a moment of brilliant light and then kind of disappear into the darkness of space. And he says apostates are like that. Oh, they attract a lot of attention. And you see that flash going across the sky. But he said they are doomed for eternal darkness. So Jude says apostasy, apostasy produces destruction, disappointment, death, debris, and doom. Why? Because there's only one way to heaven. There's only one true and living God. There's only one Savior. False teachers have chosen the way of Cain over the way of Christ. They have chosen the error of Balaam over the sacrifice of Christ. They have chosen the rebellion of Korah over the submission to Christ. As Isaiah 45 says, there is no other God besides me, a just God and a Savior. There is none besides me, so look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Let's pray. Lord, we know many people around us who unfortunately have been drawn into the path of apostasy because of what they listen to and who they have decided to believe. And we know, Lord, ultimately all that's going to produce is destruction and death and doom. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to stand for the gospel, to stand for the truth of Jesus Christ. We know it's not popular to say Jesus is the only way. It's not popular to promote the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Many folks don't like the truth. They like the way of Cain. They like to be able to just create their own faith, create their own walk with God, create their own way. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to remember you are the only God that ever has been or ever will be. And I know, Lord, most of our folks here today, they know you as their Savior. They recognize who you are. They know what you are. They know what you've done for them. But I pray, Lord, for our friends and loved ones who so desperately need Christ. Pray that we will contend for the faith and we will keep them from this path of drifting down toward apostasy. Help us, we pray, Lord, to be firm in our convictions and clear in our voices as we stand for the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.